Welcome to Habits for Happiness with Lady Fuller. The path to happiness is paved with healthy habits. We spend much of our lives searching for happiness when the key we're looking for is right there inside of us. We can discover that key through habit change, which you're about to learn about. Now, here is your host, Lady Fuller. Welcome, everyone. I am Lady Fuller, your host for Habits for Happiness, a new show right here on Voice America's Empowerment Network. Today is our second episode here on Voice America, and today to talk about the habit of mindset is our amazing and fabulous guest, the one and only Chris Klug. But before we bring Chris on, I just want to reintroduce myself. I am Lady Fuller, a habits and success coach. I help people find their internal happiness through habit change. Each week, I'll be coming to you with an incredible guest, each of whom will discuss a habit that has been pivotal to their success. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to today's guest, the super impressive Olympic medalist, Chris Klug. Welcome, Chris. I'm going to quickly... Morning, lady. That's quite an intro. Thank you. <laughs> well, let me just go through your bio because this is where people really get impressed, right? So Chris's snowboarding accomplishments include a three-time Winter Games participant. He's also a bronze medalist in Salt Lake City in the Olympics in 2002, and he became the first organ transplant recipient in history to win an Olympic medal. He's an 11-time U.S. national champion, 20-year veteran of the Snowboard World Cup, and five-time World Cup champion. Wow. In 1993, Chris was diagnosed with PSC, a rare degenerative bile duct condition that affects the liver. The only known cure is a liver transplant. Chris remained on the transplant wait list for six years, the last three months of which were spent in a critical state. During this fragile time, Chris vowed that if he made it through, he would do everything he could to make a difference for the thousands of individuals who, like him, were waiting for a second chance at life. Chris finally received his life-saving liver transplant on July 28, 2000, and only 18 months after his transplant, Amazingly, Chris took home a bronze medal in the 2002 Winter Olympics. The following year, he founded the Chris Klug Foundation to help save lives and promote a healthy, active lifestyle post-transplant. Founded in October 2003, the Chris Klug Foundation is dedicated to promoting life-saving organ and tissue donation and improving the quality of life for those touched by organ donation. Chris is also one of the top real estate brokers right here in Aspen, Colorado, where he lives with his wife, Missy, his two children, River and Bali, and most importantly, their dog, Mochi. <laughs> Welcome, Chris. That's quite, quite the intro, right? It's an uh, been an amazing life. ride, uh, lady. I'm happy to still be here. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely. And today, you know, when I first talked to you, I should let everybody know you're my also a personal friend of mine. And I wanted everyone to know more than anything that you probably are one of the happiest people that I've ever encountered in my entire life. <laughs> so, you're a wonderful guest. I've got a lot to be happy about. Yeah, and- you are. <laughs> and you radiate that, right? Interacting with you. And you know, when I asked you to be on the show, you really talked about a lot of different habits. We discussed a couple of them. We were all camping, but you chose mindset. So I want you to let me let the audience know why did you choose mindset as the habit to discuss today? Well, let me back up just one Recording second. Recording in progress. Just a couple of things that you said that are uh, that are really important. You know, I am happy, and, and I think that's a choice. And uh, 
one of my uh, one of my good friends, Klaus Obermeyer. I interviewed him years ago, and he said, "It's a choice. You can choose how you react to every situation." And I choose happiness, and, and I just so identified with that 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 it is a choice, mm-hmm. and uh, we can we can react to different situations, to adversity, to challenges in our life, however we want. You know, we can lose it and, and freak out, or we can, you know, choose the path of happiness and say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this out and, uh, and do so in a really constructive and positive manner. And uh, I think the other thing that, that's really led to my happiness is, and I know it sounds so cliche, but when you stood on death's doorstep or, or what seemed to be death's doorstep for me, being in a transplant waiting list for almost six years and uh, not sure if I was ever going to get a second chance um, organ transplant uh, and be here today. And, and now I'm celebrating 21 years since my life-saving liver transplant. But that gives you an amazing perspective to what's truly important in life. And for me, that's my family, my friends, my faith, my quality of life, getting to live in this incredible uh, environment and really trying to make the most of, of every day because it, it really is a gift for me. And I was really reminded of that 21 years ago. And um, it's, it's sort of an interesting perspective for me. On the one hand, I'm healthy. There's nothing I can't do today. I'm way healthier today than I ever was before my transplant. And so sometimes it's easy to forget that I ever had a transplant and that I'm a transplant recipient. Um, at the same time, when, as I said, you've stood on death's doorstep and, and had that perspective and a complete stranger has made the most heroic and selfless gift and given me and, uh, and two other strangers uh, a second chance at life. Um, that's a very humbling experience that you never forget. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So for listeners, I'm sure that resonates so much as it does for me. And I guess then, you know, can you define mindset as a habit for listeners. So what I hear you saying is that it's a matter of perspective. And is it more than perspective? Is it a way to train your brain to view the world? Tell us how, how you define it. I've had three distinct experiences that, that really reinforce the importance of mindset for me. The, the first um, real encounter was uh, high school football game. I was playing quarterback for uh, Mountain View High School in Bend, Oregon. I was born uh, here in Colorado, but grew up in Bend, Oregon. And I was playing quarterback and we were playing a, a team, LaGrande, Oregon. And uh, they were in the lead and, and we were favored, but but sort of struggling. And I, I stepped into that huddle and, and we had to drive it. I can't remember, 40, 50, 60 yards. And I just got into that huddle. And I said, you guys, we're, we're getting into the end zone. There, there's no alternative. And somehow I convinced those other 10 team members that this is what we're doing. And and it wasn't a spectacular drive by any means, but it just, we set our mind to it. And the 10 of us, the 11 of us collectively, um, all just got across that goal line. Mm. And, And it was so, it was so distinct for me that that's what we were doing. And there was no other alternative. Yeah, And so that was sort of my first kind of experience, like, wow, you really set your mind to this, you work hard, and, and you really have faith in your training and your preparation and, and rely on that, um, that it works. And then I think the, the biggest one for me was I was at uh, Seven West, the recovery floor at University Hospital, just after my transplant, and uh, visualized myself laying there in bed 
I was visualizing myself. I had all kinds of machines and, and IVs and everything hooked up right after a, an organ transplant. And, and I saw myself at Mount Hood on the Palmer Snowfield in Oregon, making big, beautiful turns again on my snowboard. And all my teammates were there training, and we were just a year and a half out from the 2002 uh, Winter Olympic Games in Salt Lake City. And I had a lot to, uh, you know, to second guess myself, a lot of uh, reasons to do so. But instead, I just laid there and just visualized myself making these turns and that sensation of what it was like on a snowboard and being back with my teammates and my friends doing what I love. And sure enough, about seven weeks later, I was riding my snowboard again at Mount Hood with all of my teammates. Wow, seven weeks. That's impressive. Yeah, it was a, a pretty miraculous recovery. No infection, no rejection, and uh, the anti-rejection drugs I still take today. They're doing a great job. I'm still here. So and then uh, okay. one, other, one other experience was, was really uh, poignant for me was at the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City. We were in Park City Resort where they held the snowboarding events. And I just was in the starting gate and I said, this is my day. I'm bringing home a medal today. And uh, it was kind of miraculous that I was there considering what I'd been through the last year and a half with uh, my liver transplant. But nobody expected me to be there. And I did that. And I said, well, I'm here. I might as well bring home a nice shiny necklace today. <laughs> and I woke up that day and I said, this is my day. I'm, I'm bringing home a medal. And uh, I just fought through the rounds and, and got into the small final and just knew I was going to do it that day. And so I think if you can, you know, we talk about living our lives intentionally, not being slaves to our inbox, not uh, reacting and responding, but but getting up and starting your day on your terms. And you and I talked about this the other day, but having a great morning routine, I think is an essential part of that. And for me, I really subscribe to uh, this ninja selling program and, and really a ninja, what I would call a lifestyle program. And one of the neatest things about it is not how to be successful in sales and marketing, but, but how to live a, a successful life, a well-balanced life that's on your terms. You're not always reacting. You're not always, you know, uh, responding to your inbox, but, but really intentional in how you go about it. And I think one of the things that's key for me is um, the, of the Ninja Nine is, is starting your day uh, with your gratitudes. And, and I know you do this all the time, lady, yeah. but it's, it's essential for me and, and getting up and saying, thank you for, you know, a couple of things that are uh, most important in my life at that time. And maybe it's simply just, you know, a great workout the day before, or a great bike ride. But usually it surrounds my family, my friends, my, my faith, my quality of life, my being able to enjoy this environment that we're in. And then the, the second thing that I do is I do a, a three-week affirmation. And every morning I'll, I'll sit down and do that. And I do that personally. And I do that with, uh, with our team, with my, my real estate sales team. And we have a, a team affirmation as well. Can you give us an example of an affirmation for those people who might not be familiar with what affirmations are? Yeah, it always needs to be in the positive um, and in the first person. Right. So something like uh, I enjoy, this is my affirmation, but just an example is, um, you know, I enjoy um, contracting and selling $10 million in the month of August, or I enjoy doing yoga every day for 10 minutes a day. Yeah. And, and, and something that's really uh, in the first person positive. And I'm not an expert on, on affirmations. I'm just telling you from my firsthand experience that it works. 
And, and I see this all the time with my kids. You know, kids say, I don't like that oftentimes because maybe they, they don't have the confidence that that particular activity or that exercise, or, or they're, they perceive that they're not good at it. So I don't like soccer because I whiffed when I went to kick the ball and it was embarrassing and I didn't like it. And, and I remember this with, with CrossFit when I did CrossFit for many years. And I know it sounds sort of cult-like, but, but can't is a four-letter word. And, right. and if you say, I can't do this, I can't do that. Well, you're a manifestation of your thoughts and your ideas, and we are what we believe. And when I, uh, when I public speak, and I've done a lot of corporate motivational speaking for you know, 20 years during my snowboarding career, and I love doing it. But one of the kind of uh, lessons that I share in the end, my, my recipe for success, if you will, is um, you, you've got to see it to make it happen. My father gave me the snowboarding advice at my first U.S. Open at Stratton Mountain, Vermont. He says, Chris, just go out and plan your race, race your plan. And I'm like, dad, what in the world are you talking about? My dad's never snowboarded a day in his life, but he gave me some of the greatest uh, snowboard coaching advice and, and life advice I'd ever received. Plan your race, race your plan. And what he's saying is, you know how to do this. You've got to just race your plan. And for us, it, you know, it's, uh, you got you to gotta see it to make it happen. You got to believe it to make it happen. And for me, it was on that recovery floor at Seven West at University Hospital. I saw myself at Mount Hood making big, beautiful arcs on my snowboard again with my teammates. And seven weeks later, after a liver transplant, I was doing that. And when I woke up that morning in 2002 in Salt Lake City, I said, this is my day. I'm bringing home a, a necklace today. And sure enough, I did. Wow. So I want to bring us back to the morning routine because, you know, I have clients, coaching clients, and I often start here with habit change, which is the way we start the tone of the morning is the way we show up and our mindset for the entire day, right? So you said you did gratitude and then you did affirmations. What else do you do? Well, then the third morning routine is my two thank you letters. And I've got my box of stationery right here to my left. I'm sitting in my office. And I like to uh, write my thank yous in the morning because then that puts you in um, a grateful uh, mindset of being thankful for, you know, where you are in that moment, if you will. And what and kind of thank you it. letters? Really quick. So for people that may be thinking, well, I've never written a thank you letter in my life. You know, who do you write thank you letters to? Well, anybody. Maybe it could just be um, somebody that helped support you in uh, your business. Maybe it was a coworker that did something nice. Maybe it's just somebody that um, you, you want to build uh, a more meaningful personal or work relationship with. And you just say, hey, thanks. I really appreciate what you're doing um, in your life and, and how you help support uh, our team and, and myself. And, you know, there's there's no shortage of thank yous for me to write. I mean, I could write 10 every single morning. And I, I just write two and, and try to do that, uh, do that every single morning because it puts you in the right mindset. The and other- I love um, to receive them, I should say. I love thank you letters because yeah. no one writes them anymore. And when they're received, people are completely blown away. So it's an easy, very low cost way to show appreciation as well as put yourself in appreciation. And you can, if you have a box of uh, stationery at your desk, you can do it in five minutes. You can write two thank you notes. And if you do that every morning, that's pretty significant. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I, I pulled up my, my speech because 
There's a lot of stuff in here that I really like sharing and I think is so pertinent to our conversation today. But if you're wondering about, you know, who do I send a thank you to and, and what should that say? Another thing that I really focus on when I speak is none of us succeed alone. And uh, I'll share one of my favorite stories from 2002, Salt Lake City. We were walking into the opening ceremony stadium at Rice Eccles Arena to kick off the 2002 Winter Olympic Games. And I was selected along with seven other U.S. Winter Olympians uh, representing different Winter Olympic sports, a hockey player, a figure skater, a snowboarder, um, different uh, luge and, and sliding athlete. And I was there with Frank and Tony from the Port Authority uh, of New York City that were um, going to parade into the opening ceremonies with us, carrying the flag that was found in the rubble of 9-11, which is uh, obviously very, uh, very pertinent with uh, where we are on September 10th today. And I was, uh, I had the honor of carrying the 9-11 flag in with my teammates and the two Port Authority officers uh, into Rice Eccles Arena. And, and I was so fired up. I thought, man, this is going to be amazing. We're going to walk into Rice Eccles Arena and this whole stadium is going to erupt in applause uh, for what this flag stands for and these two Port Authority heroes. And just before we were getting ready to walk in, I, I saw Tony next to me and tears just streaming down his face, but he had a big smile on his face. And he said, my partner would be so proud of us today. And of course, uh, his partner that he was referencing had uh, perished in the events of 9-11. And there he was in his most triumphant moment at the 2002 Winter Olympics, recognizing his partner. And uh, as we walked into Rice Eccles Arena, it was dead silence. And at first I thought, what's wrong with these people? Don't they understand what this flag stands for? Don't, don't they understand these heroes of the events of 9-11? And uh, then I realized just out of sheer respect for uh, the tragedy of 9-11, it was utter silence. And you could hear a pin drop in that stadium of 55,000 people. It was really powerful. Yeah, but that story for me is, uh, I'm sorry? I said, I have the chills. This is a great yeah, story. I did too. Well, actually, when I was holding the flag there, as we're doing the national anthem and, and getting ready to kick off the uh, award ceremony, I'm holding the, the rear corner of the flag and the wind is blowing it. It's, it's, it's billowing up and down. And I'm standing there kind of straight legged. And I almost felt like when you get up too fast, the lights were going to go out. And I was like, oh, I got to get some, uh, I got to get some uh, blood into my legs. So I'm standing there doing squats <laughs> as, as I'm holding the American flag for the national anthem. And, and all my teammates are like, what is the snowboarder doing? What's wrong with this guy? But I had to get some blood down in my legs. I was going to pass out. It was so powerful. But just going back to that story, you know, here Tony was in, in his most triumphant moment recognizing his partner. And I will say that you don't get through a successful liver transplant without a great team behind you. Uh, doctors, physical therapists, uh, of course, a, a donor family that says yes at a very tragic time for that family. And you don't get through um, winning an Olympic medal without a great team. Um, wax technicians, sports psychologists, coaches, my wife, my family, my friends, my physical therapist, everybody. So I always felt like when I was riding my snowboard, I had a mountain of people on my back that were all yeah. a part of that success and that bronze medal victory, because I'll tell you, you don't, uh, you don't accomplish anything great without a great team behind you. Yeah, it definitely takes a village no matter, right? Oh, yeah. I'm learning that with uh, kids too. <laughs> we're relying on the whole village. With kids, it might take more than a village, but yes. yes. <laughs> so 
Tell me a little bit. So you talked about this idea that your dad really was helpful and pivotal in your mindset. But as a competitor, as a football player in high school, as a you know Olympic athlete and on the snowboard tour for 20 odd years, what who was there a coach that taught you mindset? Was there someone beyond your dad who was really influential and explained for you to have this positive mindset? Because it does seem like a skill that couldn't be taught. And for some people who don't currently have that, I want to let people know that you can curate your mind to be able to have a positive you know, mindset. 100%. And my coach, Rob Roy, who was my snowboard coach through my whole career, uh, he and I went to the first snowboarding Olympics in 1998 in Nagano, Japan. And walking into uh, the opening ceremonies there, I looked at him and I said, Rob, can you believe how far our sport has come? And uh, I started in the early years of snowboarding on a you know, glorified shape piece of plywood. I actually have one right behind me, my original <laughs> snowboard there. Um, a glorified shape piece of plywood with bungee strap bindings and moon boots. So walking into that first opening ceremonies with Rob was pretty special and looking at him saying, look where we are, Rob, look how far our sport has come. It was uh, pretty special. Rob really worked on um, trying to create the, to emulate the race environment as much as we could in training. So what we would oftentimes do is, is wear our, our race suits in training inspect the training course as if it was a World Cup or Olympic race course. And there were real, um, I guess, consequences or um, real effects if you didn't perform that day. And we would even all chip in a hundred bucks or something. And there would be, you know, $500 on the line for that training day. And so it really had an impact and you got bragging rights and, and whatnot within the, within the team. And so, what we would do is, is do everything we could to recreate the nerves, the race environment, so that when we actually got to the race, no big deal. And don't you see that all the time with, with the best teams in the world, um, like the crazy Canucks in their heyday, or the Austrian ski team um, when they're performing at the highest level, or the Norwegians in the last few years, how strong they've been, or, or what Michaela Schifrin and her team has done. Uh, the, the ladies alpine ski team or the top, uh, you know, top freestyle snowboarders uh, or the skateboarders that we saw this summer. They're performing at such a high level every day that when they get to the Olympics, it's, oh, that, that's just doing what I always do. And so I, I think that's really something that Rob tried to, to do is create that race environment and training where when we went to the race, it wasn't all different. You weren't running different waxes on your snowboard or different clothing or a different mentality in the race. It's just what you did every single day. And oftentimes you, I get the comment, well, you had a life-saving liver transplant. Don't you want to be careful? What are you doing out there racing your mountain bike at the Leadville Trail 100 or um, doing the Grand Traverse or mountaineering or, or riding your snowboard? And that's kind of my paradigm. That's always been my life. And so riding a snowboard through the trees fast doesn't, I don't perceive that as super dangerous because it's for a lot of people like walking through Central Park with their dog um, right. or riding your bike in Leadville 100. Yeah, it's dangerous, but I've done it 11 times in a row and I ride my bike all summer long. And so I don't perceive that as taking as much risk as if somebody had never done that before. And you put them on a bike out there climbing 12,000 vertical feet over the day. So um, I think really trying to whatever 
the, the mindset of, of doing like creating that world cup race environment or creating that, what you want your mindset to be on race day, trying to create that every day. So that when you get there, it's not a foreign feeling like, oh, my nerves and I feel totally different because I haven't been in this place before. And I'm trying to do something that I'm not used to. So if you can somehow train like you want to race on race day, I think that's the secret. And that's something that Rob did with me my whole career and really helped me be comfortable in the starting gate because we all have nerves. If you want to do well, when you're giving a speech, you care about the outcome. So you get nervous. Or if you're if it's race day, you want to perform at a high level because you love it and you want to have a great result. You're nervous because you care about the outcome. If you don't care about the outcome, maybe you're, uh, maybe you're not doing the right thing or, or maybe you need to mix it up. But if yeah. you care about the results or the outcome and, and how you perform, then you're going to get a little bit nervous. And so what can you do in, in everyday life and in training and your preparation to emulate those conditions so that you don't seize up when you have your opportunity? Right. So most of us are not going to compete in the Olympics, unfortunately. So, you know, we're going to break in just a couple of minutes, but in the couple of minutes we have before break, if you could tell just the, you know, the, the average people like me, you know, most of us find ourselves in times feeling like a victim to life. And this is where mindset, I think, as a coach can be so powerful, right? So you're going from victor from victim and what advice do you have to stay in this victor mindset, even when the world seems to be, you know, falling apart? Uh, Rob used to always, my coach, used to also say it's, it's not when you're on the stand, standing on top of the podium when everything's going right, when you're feeling great and your board is running fast and you're physically fit and healthy and strong and, and you've just, you're in the zone, you're in a flow state, if you will. That's not as impressive to win when you're in that place. But what about when you, you have the flu and you're sick and the wax tech and you miss the wax and your neck is sore because you were traveling and you didn't sleep well, whatever it is, and you're not feeling well. But when you can perform when everything's going to hell and you can still get into that place where you need to be to perform at a high level. That is the key. And how do you do that? I think you have to have a consistent routine, a regimen that gets you there no matter what's happening with. And, and what I always loved about snowboarding is you're not in a, in a set environment where the basketball hoop is always 10 feet. The uh, temperature in the room is always between 65 and 71. I mean, we race with 30 mile an hour winds blowing sideways and, and God knows what snow condition each day. It could be pure ice where you need the edges razor sharp. It could be a powder fest with two feet of new snow. But to perform in all those different conditions, of course, experience and, uh, and mindset are critical. But every time when I was training, I would have a regular routine. And I would go to the top of the race hill and I would, I would do my hip circles. I would do my rotation exercises, my strength things to sort of get my body and my mindset ready to train hard and perform. And it was the same thing. We're going to head to a break. Okay. So we'll finish up. I got some more thoughts on this. On, on hip circles, right? So we're going to head for a break, everyone. Hang tight. We'll come back here with Chris Klug talking about mindset and moving from victim to victor mindset in your daily lives. Thanks, everyone.
Want to reward clients, customers, or employees with a gift that will blow their socks off? We at International Gifting Company have your next corporate event covered. We carry 250 personalized gifts for on-site incentive events. Or we can create virtual gift boxes your employees and clients can receive at home. Contact us today for a quick and free proposal. We love to wow. Contact info at intlgiftingco.com or check out our webpage at intlgiftingco.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Try out a free coaching session with your host, Lady Fuller, to learn more about her individualized and corporate coaching programs. Learn to drop bad habits and pick up healthier habits to live a healthier life. Email her at lady at happinessmba.com. That's L-A-D-Y at happinessmba.com. Or check out our coaching business at habits, the letter for happiness.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Habits for Happiness. To reach the show today, call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now, back to our program. Here again is Lady Fuller. And we're back, everyone. Thanks for hanging in there. We're here on Habits for Happiness, talking mindset with former Olympic medalist Chris Klug. So we stuck a pin in before the break, this concept of moving from the victim mindset, which most of us in our daily lives can find ourselves in at least once, to victor mindset. And we'd asked Chris how he does that in his daily life. So Chris, can you expand on this idea for those of us who will never be Olympic medalists? How do we move to this sort of victor mindset and reframe what's happening to us on a daily basis so that we know we're not a victim of our experiences, but that perhaps our, our experiences are happening for us and not to us? Well, I kind of delved into, you know, having a, a routine to uh, achieve consistent results and, and consistent performance. And for me, it was a calisthenics routine in the morning, every day before training on the hill and every day before uh, racing. And that would involve, you know, some different athletic warm-up exercises, calisthenics, but it was also um, a, a breathing uh, and sort of mental preparation for what you're going to do. And that's kind of the same thing in my in my daily routine today, where you've got this this pre-program, then you you're, you're ramp up, and then the, the bulk of the work you're going to do, and then this sort of reflective ramp down or, or cool down period. It's the same thing with athletics. I would do my calisthenics. I would warm up my body. I'd warm up my mind. I would do a few breathing exercises. Then you jump into your, your core training block, and then you do a cool down. 
where you reflect on, okay, what did I take away from this today? And so often you, you hear people say, well, I learn a lot more in my losses or my defeats than I do in my victories. And, and there were so many times in my career where I was the best person in the starting gate that day and I didn't end up on the podium. Or consequently, I wasn't the best racer out there or the best athlete out there that day. I didn't have the best equipment. I, I didn't have the best training and preparation or the best line. And I ended up on the podium. So and I, I think that's, again, just goes back to, to the, the mindset and to your preparation. And just the last thing I was going to add is, then when you actually get into the starting gate, I would have a ritual where I grab a, grab a little handful of snow, I put that on my neck, and that's sort of my reminder that it's go time. There's, you put the blinders on, and the only thing that matters is your, your heel side and your toe side turns around the gate. And, and the last thing I would do is, is before I would pull out of the start gate is just take in the view. And maybe sometimes it was the Alps, the, the Dolomites, the Rockies, the Japanese Alps, wherever you were, and just take a deep breath and just say, you know, I would always say thanks to God, you know, thanks to my donor family, thanks to my family, and, and thanks for the opportunity to be in that starting gate. And it was just sort of a, a deep diaphragmic breath that would just say, okay, it's go time, and I'm grateful for this opportunity to perform, whatever happens. And that's the great thing about competition is that just like we saw in the football game last night with, with, uh, um, the two teams, Tampa Bay and, and Dallas, like anything can happen. And, and when you accept that challenge and that opportunity of being in the starting gate, let's see who the best is on this particular day. Yeah, Tom Brady and the Buccaneers won the Super Bowl last year, but Dak Prescott and the Cowboys showed up last night and they said, well, we would like to say something about that too. Mochi's getting very excited about that. <laughs> Mochi's getting excited. Yes. I'm a Saints fan, so <laughs> exactly. hard to hear about Tampa. Well, you got a lot to uh, you got a lot to be excited about this winter too. It's going to be a yes. fun season for yes. Saints. Yes, so so back to the sort of idea of incorporating mindset into your day. For those of us who again aren't you know out there practicing snowboarding for the Olympics, you had mentioned this idea of morning practice that incorporates gratitude ramping up, having the bulk of your day, and then ramping down. How would that look in a day, a work-life day for someone who's commuting to the office every day? So you can do your gratitudes anytime. I do it right when I get up because I don't want to be reactional and looking at the push notifications from CNN or from emails from work or text messages in the middle of the night. So I try to turn my phone off. Uh, Ideally have a separate alarm clock than your phone. So you don't wake up reacting, but wake up on your terms. Maybe that's just two minutes of taking in the view outside or the view in your living room or whatever it is and saying, I'm really grateful today for my kids being back in school and having a great start to the new school year. Or I'm grateful for the energy that this new puppy has brought our family today and the fun and the responsibility that's teaching our family that this is one of God's creatures and we need to take better care of, of mochi and of each other. Well, or I'm, I mean, there's so much to be grateful for in our life. And if you start your day, um, be of starting your day with a gratitude, I think it just, it sets the tone for the whole day. Then I, uh, I do my affirmation every morning personally. And then with my, my uh, sales team, and then I jump into a couple of my thank you notes and then I have my power hour where I, I sit down and I just bang through the emails, boom, 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 all the stuff I've got to do. And I'm not being distracted trying to multitask because multitasking is bullshit. You can't, 
you can't do everything we want to do and do a great job at it all. So just focus on what you're doing, doing a great job on that and do it so that you're proud of it and, and whatever task that is and move on to the next thing. Um, and then I like to take a good break where I, I go out and try to connect with uh, the people that are important in my life and, and my business and um, touch base with clients. And I think if you're running a business, your, your CRM or your sphere or your database is your business. When you're in sales and marketing, it's two things. It's your relationships and it's your experience. And so I really try to focus on, hey, how can I strengthen those relationships with the people that matter most in my life or in my career, whatever that is, um, and then get back into your, your afternoon bulk of what you have to do. And then you're ramped down. How did I do today? And, and what did I accomplish? What do I need to put in my reminders and my to-do list for tomorrow? And so you sort of stay on task. And then if you have a team or people that you're working with, how can I um, communicate best with them so that they're buying into this system or, or there's some collaboration and cooperation? Um, yeah, I, I love this because it's such real world um, advice for most of us who are living this sort of nine to five work life, right? And mindset is so key. You know, I'm a big proponent of how you show up every day is how you show up in your life, right? Mm-hmm. So how we do one thing is how we do everything. So I'm wondering. That's exactly what we were talking about in training. Yeah. Is how you show up in training is how you're going to show up in the race. So if you can show up and train at a high level and, and push the envelope and 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 train with that mindset of this is exactly what I'm going to look like on race day. That's exactly what I was talking about. So you get to race day and it's not this foreign environment where I have to do something differently. No, you right. just do what you always do. Yeah. And so it also, I mean, incorporating that back into sort of something that the listeners can have a tangible takeaway you know, we're constantly always fighting this idea, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? And being that I know you and you're one of the most positive people I've ever encountered, how do we keep seeing the glasses half full or refillable versus half empty in our daily lives beyond gratitude? Well, I think there's there's so much opportunity out there. And um, as I said earlier, I really believe in the you know, a dadge that, you know, if you, if you enjoy what you're doing, you never work a day in your life. And I think when I was snowboarding, there was lots of athletes that were more talented than me. And I think you, you hear so often in people that are doing uh, interviews and, and are very experienced at recruiting and at HR, they say, you know, grit and, and fortitude and perseverance is more important than any talent. You know, you hire for mindset or you hire for mentality and you train for skill. And I guess I was successful in in football and snowboarding and and now in in sales and and marketing because I really enjoy it. I enjoy what I'm doing. And you have to have a passion for what you're doing. So the results, if you love what you're doing and you're working hard and and you're dedicated and committed to it and you're doing everything you can to be better each day, the results will come. And that is monetarily in business or your, your rankings on the, on the finish list and the results, they will come. And, and it's, again, cliche, but focus on the process, focus on the journey, not the outcome. And, and if you're, you're showing up in training, and like you said, how you do every day is how you do, you know, how, how you perform on race day, how you do life. And so I think if you're if you find something that you're you're passionate about, I think the question of the of the glass half full 
is is really easy because you see opportunity. You're you're motivated to uh, improve as a person, improve in that specific task or, or talent or career, and and so you're getting better each day, and you, and you're motivated and having fun. Now, listen, that's not to say we don't all have challenging days and and setbacks. I feel like in sales sometimes it's a pat on the back and a high five, and the next day it's a kick in the junk. So. I mean, <laughs> You got to have yes, some thick- a lot of a lot of professions. I think people feel that way. Totally, and uh, and in athletics, it's one day you're on the podium, and the next day you uh, you crash on the first gate or something. So it you, you got to sometimes laugh at yourself a little bit and have a little humility and say, you know, today wasn't my day. I did everything I could to put myself in a position to be successful, and didn't work out. And you have to have really thick skin, I think, in sales because, you know, sometimes the the house next door to you gets listed by somebody else. And you're like, man, I'm such an expert on this neighborhood and on this street and on this product. Why didn't they hire me? And and you just have to say, you know what, whatever, for whatever reason it wasn't meant to be, I'll get the next one. And right. so I think having thick skin is is a really important part of that too. So, you know, just to to wrap up that question, being passionate about what you're doing. And if you're not, then do something different. And I think being passionate so that you do get up with that drive and that motivation to improve and 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 really deliver the best performance that you can. Um, and then if it's if it's not working out, you know, sometimes if you do have a bad day or, or just brush it off, you know, don't be so darn hard on yourself. Yeah. The only thing that's permanent is the idea of impermanence, I often say. Mm-hmm. So this idea that, you know, we just don't know what's going to happen next. And so all we really have control over is our perspective. And we could argue through this conversation that perspective and mindset are very closely related, Mm -hmm. right? So they're very much intertwined. So, you know, we're about to, we have about a couple, about 10 minutes to give you just, I want to let people know this amazing work you do. You, as I said, when we opened, you run a foundation for organ transplants and if you could t- first start off with a little bit about telling us a little bit about your experience having um, this liver condition and what it was like and your experience as being a, a, on the transplant list and then and talk, then talk about your work and how people might be able to get involved. Thanks, lady. I appreciate that. Uh, as I said, I'm a 21-year liver transplant survivor and uh, grateful to grateful to still be here. You know, when we have injuries or setbacks in life, in my experience, I I blew my knee out in a bad gymnastics accident in 1998 and had childhood asthma, really bad childhood asthma and had all sorts of other injuries and orthopedic injuries in my career. And when you have those setbacks, you go to the doc, you get it diagnosed and you begin a physical therapy regimen or surgery or or PT, whatever whatever it is that you need to do. And with an organ transplant, you're, you're kind of hanging out and, and hoping and praying for that second chance. And none of us uh, don't like being in charge and in control of our future and, and the direction we're heading. And I'll tell you, being on a waiting list, your whole life is sort of put on hold and it's a really tough place to be. So you're and when on a waiting I was first list I, for six years, just so yeah, for all six years. So six years and then three months in a critical state. So specifically tell us about that because that sounds harrowing. Well, six years is a long time. And when I was first diagnosed, I, I was diagnosed through a routine physical with PSC, primary sclerosing cholangitis, which is a 
most likely an autoimmune uh, condition of the bile ducts, which leads to a very aggressive form of liver cancer if you're not transplanted. And when I was first diagnosed, I'm looking around the room going, who, who are you talking to? I feel like a million bucks. What are you talking about? I was totally asymptomatic and in total denial. And then uh, as we got closer to six years, my health had really deteriorated. And um, I was really familiar with the numbers at the time. There was 86,000 people waiting for solid organ transplants across the country back in, uh, in 2000, leading up to the summer of 2000 when I had my transplant. And I knew at the time there was about 16 or 17 people that died every day waiting for a solid organ transplant. And I was, as I was waiting on the, on the transplant waiting list at a more critical stage, I thought, man, am I going to be one of those 16 or 17 people that die every day waiting? And, and it's a scary place to be because there wasn't a lot I could do about it. And each week I was getting sicker and sicker and I couldn't go to the gym and hammer on my bike like I was accustomed to. I was playing chess and kind of playing a little bit of golf, but that was became almost too arduous in the end. My hematocrit that uh, carries your red blood cells and your oxygen carrying capacity had dropped in half. I lost about 35 pounds and I, my, my health was really deteriorating. I was heading downhill. And yet I had a great support network to help me hang on and, and keep my head up and um, and not give up. And I think that was really really critical, but it's a tough place to be because you know that if you stay on this path, you're not going to make it, that ultimately the PSC was going to kill me. But I also was facing an organ transplant, which is a rather large surgery. I've got, you know, an incision from my right oblique to my sternum and looked like a great white took a big bite out of the middle of me. But I knew that was my only chance for long-term survival. And so I, uh, the day that I did get the call um, in July of 2000, I really celebrated and headed down to the uh, university hospital in, in Denver and was really excited for that transplant, albeit uh, a bit of trepidation, but uh, really excited that finally I'd gotten the call. And, and, and I remember almost like before a race, the adrenaline was pumping and I was fired up. I was like, let's do this. I'm in the starting gate. And uh, then they postponed the whole surgery for the next day because they didn't have a candidate lined up for the heart transplant. And he said, I'll go home and sleep on it, which was nearly impossible. And the next day I showed up and I, and I remember looking at my wife, Missy, and my dad and said, wow, am I going to get through this? I was, uh, I was that scared thinking, am I going to wake up from this surgery? And six hours later, I woke up, both arms in the air, being wheeled down the recovery floor, yelling, I rule! <laughs> and I think the... Uh, I can picture this. I think the pain meds, we might have been doing a little talking at that yeah, point. But right. I knew right then and there I was going to make it back. And uh, as I shared, I had a miraculous recovery. I was out of the hospital four days later and riding my snowboard seven weeks later. And uh, of course, won my Olympic medal a year and a half later. And um, really attribute that to, as I said, a great team, uh, a donor family that said yes at a very difficult time for them. And, uh, and I think, you know, my mindset of this is what I love to do. And this is where I was getting back to. I'll never forget talking to my transplant surgeon, an amazing guy, uh, Dr. Egal Kam. And, I said, and, and when we sat down for my pre-surgery meeting and, and I said, doc, can I do this? The Olympics are just a year and a half later. Can I bounce back? Can I do it? And I'm firing questions at him a million a minute. And he says, listen, 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 I, I don't know. It's never been done before. And then he said it in this great Israeli, you know, Hebrew accent. And, and he said, but but I don't see why not. 
And that's all I needed. It was just a little glimmer of hope. It's just a possibility. And it's almost like the funny quote. So there's a chance. Yeah. And I, really I don't was. see why not. Yeah, so, I don't see why not. So tell us about, you know, for those of us who, you know, like myself, don't know very much. I believe I am an organ donor. You can put it on your license. How does one become an organ donor? How does one, you know, tell us about the foundation and um, maybe a little bit about how organ donations has changed since you got a transplant for the better. Let's hope. Great question. So three ways to document your decision. Number one, have the conversation with your loved ones, with your next of kin, with your family. Hey, uh, mom, dad, brother, sister, son, daughter, if something happens to me, this is what I want to happen. Um, Give it all away. I can't uh, take it with me where I hope to be going. So let's help somebody else out. And the impact that one organ donor can have is pretty significant. You can save as many as, as eight lives through organ transplantation, improve as many as 50 lives through tissue, cornea, uh, all kinds of donations. So the impact that we can have, the legacy that we can have, even if we're not here, is really significant. So the first way to document your organ donation decision is have the conversation with your family. Secondly, when you get your license for the first time or you get it renewed, I believe it's every 10 years here in Colorado and a little different in different states, but when you're at the DMV, they'll ask you, do you want to be an organ donor? Check that box, yes, or whatever your wishes are. And the third way is you can go to chrisklugfoundation.org and, uh, and register on your state registry through the map that we have uh, for organ donation registration. And the reason that's important, if you say, well, I do it at the DMV, I check that box, I'm good. It still makes sense to register with your state registry. Here in Colorado, it's donatelifecolorado.org, or again, chrisklugfoundation.org. You can click on your state, whether it's Louisiana or Colorado, and donate through your state, or, or excuse me, document your donation decision through, uh, through your state registry that way. And the reason that's important is oftentimes when I'm snowboarding, mountain biking, mountaineering, kiteboarding, I don't have my license in my pocket that has a little heart uh, right. on my license that designates me as an organ donor. So those are the three ways to do it. And uh, I really encourage everybody, do it now in the comfort of your home and at the dinner table or something and have that conversation because the last place you ever want to be having that conversation is, God forbid, following a tragedy and and you're in the ER and uh, a nurse that's trained uh, to have that conversation, albeit as a total stranger, approaches you and your family and says, well, your, uh, your loved one isn't going to make it. Would you consider organ donation? And it almost feels like really a violation of your privacy. And and not the place you want to have that conversation. Have it in the comfort of your home when everybody's healthy and happy and um, and you can see what everybody's wishes are. Yeah. And so tell us how many people have received transplant aid through your foundation. A oh, great question. So we've been around. I really, uh, when I was at the 2002 Olympics, I recognized I had a great podium to speak from and uh, and trumpet this cause of organ donation awareness and uh, and education. And so, and I also made that commitment really when the lights were about to go out for me and I was being wheeled into the surgery room and I was looking up at Missy and my dad saying, hey, am I going to get through this? I, I sort of made a commitment um, as a part of my faith and, and to myself and to my family. I said, if I get through this, I'm going to do everything I can to give back and, and help others. And that's what Chris Klug Foundation is all about. Three things. It's about education. It's about inspiration. And it's about um, helping those that are going through the same thing that I did 21 years ago. Um, and so the, what we really focus on is 
um, those three things, education, um, inspiration, and registration. And, and we do a lot of events with young people on campuses through our Donor Dudes initiative and our campus events, as well as our Donor Dudes game night and our toolkit for teachers. Um, so really, we do about, I mean, with COVID, it's been a little bit different, but typically it's about 75 to 100 events a year. The foundation is about a $450,000 uh, annual uh, budget, uh, of course, a 501c3 nonprofit. Right. And uh, we do about 75 to 100 events a year, touching uh, tens of thousands of people all over the country. And we're a national organization based right here in Aspen, Colorado. Yeah. And so for the, we only have a minute or so left. So tell us how many people are on the transplant list a year and you know what would an increase in organ donation do for those people? There's about 121,000 people waiting across the country today, uh, about 4,000 right here in, in the state of Colorado. Um, and, and again, the uh, one organ donor can save up to eight lives and improve as many as 50 lives. So uh, if everybody uh, in, the, in the country said yes to organ donation, we could obviously help uh, the vast majority of those 121,000 people, but it wouldn't eliminate the weight, which is really our goal. We also have to uh, educate people to not get on the transplant waiting list by taking better care of themselves and, and not getting as sick. So yeah, um, well, yeah that's, that's what it's all about is, uh, is sharing your decision and, and helping each other. Well, you're a huge inspiration to me as a friend, but also to everyone listening and to the world. And thank you for all that you do in organ donation and beyond and being a light for us and understanding this habit of mindset and just sort of, you know, helping us all understand how mindset got you through this tragedy, you know, where you were able to survive and then go on to win an Olympic medal. So again, thank you for being here. And I just want to remind everyone what I always say in close, which is the road to happiness is paved with healthy habits. So please, please, please listen next week for another riveting conversation or powerful habit that can change your life. And thank you so much to Chris Klug, former um, Olympic Olympian, um, bronze Olympic medalist and liver transplant recipient. Thank you so much for being here and educating us on the power of mindset. Thank you for tuning in to Habits for Happiness. Please join Lady Fuller for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, discover how to find your new happy place.